Ayers on the Road, value-based parenting and life balance ideas from world-traveling family coaches. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Hello there, it's Ayers on the Road. Richard and Linda here in the continuing pandemic. Happy May to everyone. I'm sure a lot of us feel the same way. Thank goodness April's over. No kidding. Well, let's hope May is a much better month than April. Let's hope that it's the month we reemerge. And the timing couldn't be better weather-wise. I mean, May is it just says emerge. It just says new season. It says new optimism. It says new a new lease on life. Let's hope it's true. Flowers, buds, baby leaves, all that stuff is is here. But um, well, you know. I'm kind of getting sad that maybe we're going to be through this. Isn't it weird? Because you're like, oh, you I mean? can't stand it. I'm just like, we've oh, got to get past this. But you'll, you'll we, have more to do. You'll no, have, no, no, no. Commitments I do, will no, return. No, I don't want more well, to do. So that's commitments is feeling heavy. But then also, there I've learned so much in this intermission. It's amazing. Okay, well, that makes sense. I've just been reading about something called liminal space which is the space between, you know, your your life before and your life afterwards. And I do not think it's ever going to be the same. But um, I've really liked this liminal space, obviously, because we didn't lose our job. Well, and one of the things it's given us a chance to do is to go back and review some of our earlier work. And, And we're going to be talking today about... Believe it or not, we figured this out just as we were looking back through it. The longest book we've ever written, it's nearly 500 pages, and it's called Empty Nest Parenting. Now, why would Empty Nest Parenting be so long? If it's Empty Nest, then the book ought to be fairly empty, right? Well, no. (laughs) As it turns out, all of us, most of us, unless we die early, and it's not going to happen to us because we're already old, (laughs) we will spend at least twice as much time as, well, more time, in any case, as empty nest parents than as parents with kids in our house. You know, most of us, when when our kids begin leaving home, are in our 40s, and if we're going to live to our 70s, we may be empty nest parents to some of our children for 30 years or more. And so it's it's a tremendously important time, and and we're going to talk today about how to make that time the best it can be. The name of the book is Empty Nest Parenting, but the subtitle is what's important, Adjusting Your Stewardship As Your Children Leave Home. And uh, read Stephen Covey, who is helping us so much in writing our preface and everything. Oh, we miss that man. He wrote a beautiful thing. Uh, Not only will this book help you get through the difficult transitions of children moving out and moving on, it will help you build a beautiful family culture in your three-generation family, and that is where real happiness lies. Now, the three-generation family, that's the key. You know, we, as Americans, we, we, we're sort of unique in the world, and when we say family, we often mean a nuclear family, just the parents and the kids. But as all of you know, when you think about it, in most of the world, family means at least three generations, and sometimes four, and they usually live in the same house. And in many parts of the world, especially Asia, the the older generation in that house, the grandparents or the great-grandparents, they're the ones with the final say. They're the ones with the authority. They're the ones everyone defers to. 
maybe we should adopt that. (laughs) (laughs) We'd go for that. Um, We are so lucky, though, because we co-authored this with our oldest daughter, Saren, who had been gone for 12 years. You just read that. It is amazing that that happened. She was had one little boy and was pregnant with the second one, but she'd lived with a lot of roommates, had been a missionary for our church, and then had come home and worked for a while. And so she had a really broad idea of what it was like to leave home and all about emptiness parenting. So we were trying to write it both from the standpoint of the parents, the emptiness parents, and what we called the N, let's see, leaving the nest kids, LTN kids, so Saren was writing from her side, what does it feel like to leave home and what does it feel like to, how do you want, what do you want from your parents after you're out on your own? How, in what ways do you still appreciate their parenting and in what ways do you want them to back off? And, and our part was, you know, looking at it by that time, by the time we wrote the book, seven of our nine children had left home. And so... Um, we were in this process. Charity, our youngest, by the way, was annoyed at us. Why are you writing a book called Emptiness Parenting? I'm still I'm here. Still here. <laughs> and Eli was still there, our youngest son. Um, and it's really interesting because in the end, we thought, well, actually, this should have been called Emptiness yeah, Parenting yeah. because there's so much to think about while your kids are still there, but getting ready to transition. So, it, and in fact, the very first, I said, if none of your kids have left home, this is a great time to read this book because you need to think about what you're going to do and how you're going to proceed. So we started out by saying, I think this is instructive, Linda. We said, here's what this book is about. And we listed four things. Let's just read them. Choosing who you want to be for the rest of your life and centering that choice on family. Number two, it's about making family bonds grow stronger rather than weaker as the years pass and as generations grow up. Number three, becoming true patriarchs and matriarchs and leading and supporting your family forever. And number four, it's about creating a mutually beneficial and increasingly interdependent relationship with your children as you share your lives, your knowledge, and your love. And, you know, we were amazed as we reviewed back through this, Linda, how um, all nine of our children got involved. And we we created a family constitution, a sort of an emptiness constitution. Here's what we're going to here's how we're going to run this emptiness family, even as we disperse and live in different places and, and kids have their own families and so on. Here's the constitution of how we're going to try to make it work. And we made some mistakes in that, but it's what's amazing is that all of them got involved and we put this together and sort of decided what's our family going to look like now that we don't all live in the same house. Yeah, it's interesting because this uh, we haven't looked at this book for a long time because we're far beyond that now. But is when this translated very interestingly, this is on Irish, Irish free books. Yeah. But the way it transferred, and you've all have seen this on your computer before, there are little funny little doodads and oh, the quote marks, the got, quote marks, got and the dash up. marks, and anything. So, but so you can still when, read it. When it's we tell you right. where to find this book, some of you will, will want to read this. I, I have a strong suspicion, Linda, that a large part of our audience on Irish on the Road are emptiness parents or emptying nest parents and some of our children are in that category now our oldest two children are 
are bidding adieu to their oldest kids as they go off on missions or go off to college or, or get married and so on. And it's a tremendously important transitional time in life. It's, I, I can't emphasize that too much, and it's hard. I mean, you know, especially, I don't, I, I don't want to be gender biased here, but especially for a lot of moms, emptying the empty nest, just the word empty nest, is scary. It's like, no, no, I don't want to be, I, I don't want to let my kids go. It's a, it's an emotion. It's a, yeah. it's a traumatic time. It is. It's, it's emotional to send your children out to be missionaries in the world. And for us and our, uh, and our religion, we send these kids off when they're 18, 19, 20. It used to be, it used to be 19 and 21 when they were sending. And it used to be that the kids could only call twice a year, Christmas and Yeah, Christmas. those were the days. Now they're calling Every week, which is really different. (laughs) But but I just, I had a little article in here about waking up on the morning that Noah left for his mission and with a pit in my stomach thinking, oh my gosh, is he going to survive? I know he knows how to make mac and cheese. I know he's going to love beans and rice because he's going to Chile. But does he, I mean, how is this vacuum who just absolutely sucks up food every day going to provide enough for himself? Exactly. I mean, there are so many, so many things that you worry about as a mother. Well, one of the things, and one of the reasons this book is so long, is that we we divided it into four phases, and then we addressed, we, we had a lot of questions for each phase. Let's just take a minute before the break, Linda, and talk about these four phases of emptiness parenting. Uh, the first phase is when your child just leaves home, right at that traumatic moment when your child is leaving for the first time. And and let's just give you a flavor of some of the questions on this. Let's just read every other one real fast. Um, first of all, when should kids leave? When When should I push them out of the nest? Number two, what emotions will I feel when my child first leaves home? And what should I worry about when my child leaves? How will my kids feel as they leave home for the first time? What if they're homesick or what if they don't miss me at all? <laughs> what, do, what do my kids need from me when they first leave, leave home? How will they feel about their independence when they leave? What will I feel from my children once they're gone? What do I want my kids to be to me once they're on their own? How much should I try to influence their college education? Should I communicate with them and how often? Well, the answer to that is yes. (laughs) (laughs) How will our relationship and communication change once they're out of the house? Um, how often should I visit them? How often should they visit me? And it goes on. We're not, we haven't even read all the questions. Oh, but, but maybe the more important is the next one. How should I handle financial issues and how yeah, much support? Yeah. Because that is huge. We're going to get into that after the break. Yeah. But then, then the second phase, think about this as phases. The first one being the child first leaves. The second phase, when he or she gets her first full-time job. That's a big transition, more than going to college, because now they're they're beginning to be financially independent as well. So some of the questions are, um, how much should I be involved with my kids' career decisions? And what sort of financial support should I offer once they're working? And then uh, how should I help if they're out of work? And what if they want to move to the house? That's pretty common. <laughs> What do I encourage them to do about, should I encourage them to find a job near me and keep them close? How much advice should I give them 
about how they spend their money. How often should I try to get together with them? And how often should we communicate and get together? And what if their church activity is slipping? So you see a, a range of questions. Then the third phase, again, one being when they first leave, two when they get their first job. The third phase, when he or she gets married, uh, how does that, that's a huge, that's a sea change because now they have a partner. They're, they're leaving scripturally, they're leaving mother and father and cleaving to their new spouse. So lots of questions. What is my role in my child's marriage decision? Um, what if I don't feel good about that decision? What if my child is seriously dating or marrying someone that I disapprove of? What should my role be in the actual wedding? What will my child need from me in the first few months of marriage? And what sort of relationship should I hope for with my married child? What if I see something in the marriage that worries me? We've never done that. <laughs> How much financial support should I off offer now that they're married? And what if there's a crisis with money or job? Which may be huge this week, <laughs> this month, <laughs> this pandemic. What sort of relationship should I try for with my child's spouse. What about with my child's spouse's parents? And what if my child complains about his or her spouse to me? And what do I do if my marriage kids are in terms of dividing their time between two sets of parents? It's so annoying they uh, have to share kids. To and, that, and that list of questions goes on. And, and by the way, our kids were providing, especially Saren, who co-authored the book with us, the, the answers to these questions from the child standpoint. We were providing them from the adult standpoint. So just before break, let's go to the fourth phase. The fourth phase of emptiness parenting when they have children of their own. And that is a big sea change again. And now some of the questions. Absolutely. How will our relationship change once they've had their own children? How much should I help with child care? How can I be involved with grandkids who live far away? What sort of financial support should I offer my grandchildren? How can I help my kids be great parents to their grandchild? What's the biggest difference between parenting and grandparenting my and it goes on and you yeah. get you get an idea of how many we got to take a brief break when we come back though we're going to talk to you about the constitution we put together with our children as they were leaving home outlining how we wanted to be as an emptiness family so hang on we'll be right back welcome back to Ayers on the road Here's Richard and Linda Iyer. And we're back uh, talking today about emptiness parenting. And we know there are many out there that are in that. You're, you've got to be on one side or the other, either the child that has left home or the child, the parent that is bringing kids out into the world. Absolutely. Now, we what we want to do, and we're not suggesting this should be a model for any of you, we're just throwing it out as stimulation on some of these things. We, we created this constitution with our children as they were leaving home that was sort of to govern how we would relate to each other and communicate and what we would try to become as a family once we were uh, separated from them physically. And we divided it into, into, uh, into four major areas emotional, social, financial, and spiritual. The emotional one we called the emotional safe harbor. 
and there were some principles and some promises and some practices. Let's just read them quickly, Linda. The principles of the safe harbor. What people need emotionally from family is unconditional and even irrational, not tied to performance, love, acceptance, approval, and confidence. In the adult IR realm, which is what we called our adult family, this works in all directions. Kids need it from parents, parents from kids, parents need it from each other, and kids need it from each other, and grandkids need this emotional safe harbor from all of the above. The purpose of love is not to change each other, but to nourish each other. No, so, so those principles led to the following two promises of the safe harbor. One, we will love each other unconditionally and conspicuously strive to make each other happy. And we'll always be there for each other, night or day, to laugh or cry, to rejoice or commiserate, to share with each other's emotions. See, we wanted to get these in writing, and we could all agree to it. It could become sort of our watchword or the the constitution of our family in this new place where we were separated from each other. And that led to the practices of the safe harbor, which were very simple. Number one... We say, love you, instead of, or in addition to, goodbye, whenever we talk and we think about it, and we mean it. We email and call and text each other regularly, and of course now Marco Polo and a whole bunch of other things. So we're always updated. We know what each other's doing. Um, We listen and lift, developing our gifts of empathy and genuine compliments and giving these gifts to each other. So you see where we were trying to go with the emotional part. And again, this wouldn't have meant a thing or wouldn't have been effective at all if we'd been doing it unilaterally. But we're trying to do this with our children, have them contribute and make a decision collectively together about how we want our family to work now that we're no longer living together. Um, I do have to throw in a little story here. I think what we found most valuable in writing this book was a little pact that we made with our children because I have to tell you that Richard's a little bit difficult to deal with when he has an opinion about <laughs> well, what should yeah, happen. Well, yeah, the pact was part of this we constitution. Have to be real. It's part of this constitution, but the pact was that if Richard gave somebody some advice... Which I can't help. ...a child, which he cannot help himself, the child would not be offended. No matter what the no advice was. No matter what. He'd listen, he or she would listen and would not be offended. But the other side of the pact is that if they do not take our advice, that we would not be offended. Yeah, you're nice to say we, but you mainly mean me. I do, but uh, (laughs) it really is. It was interesting. It really worked out well. I mean, remember when we, uh, Saren, this Saren was buying their first house in California and they found this little cracker box. That was before we'd written this book. In uh, San Jose, which is the mecca of um, Silicon Silicon Valley. And uh, they found this teeny little house, and this was a long time ago. I said, don't buy it, don't buy it. Don't buy it, don't buy it. It's falling apart. It's not worth $400,000. I think it was three fifty. dollars Well, they sold it two years later. Five years later, they bought it. Doubled. Doubled their money. (laughs) And they love it, and I kind of love it when I'm wrong on something like that, right? Okay, then, then the second part of this constitution or this agreement we called it the the social grove, the grove, and you'll see you'll see why we were trying to um, create something that uh, that would work in terms of supporting the kids. And again, we had principles, promises, and 
practices. So let's read through these really quickly. The, the principles of being a social grove, supporting each other socially, were these. Um, each individual's uniqueness must be discovered and appreciated. Each person's agency must be protected and respected. Asking each other is the key to this discovery, appreciation, protection, and respect. Asking about needs and about dreams and asking for input, opinion, and advice. So here were our promises. Number one, we will be masters of the ask, seeking each other's opinions and ideas and feelings within this context. We'll each be both givers and receivers of advice. And even if the ask in principle is not followed, we'll neither react, overreact, pro or con, to advice or be offended by it. This is what you were saying. Nor will we be offended if our advice is not followed. Yeah, that was that came out of this book, really. Right. We will communicate openly and honestly and fully, using tact not as a device, but as a way to build each other and be sensitive and positive. In-laws, new sons or daughters-in-law, come into the grove as complete equals both in our trust and in our sharing. And we'll, boy, we've been so lucky on oh, that. Have. Everybody is not that lucky. We hope they feel, we hope a daughter-in-law feels just the same as a daughter we will seek time together and spend time together and prioritize time together despite other demands. And if two or more IRL members talk about a non-present member, an observation, a situation, how we can help, it will be kept positive and, and complimentary. And that member will be informed of the discussion right away. In other words, no talking behind each other. Okay, wait mind. a minute. You have to go back just a bit. Because the in-laws, we started thinking, well, we'll just have them call us mom and dad, and they'll be just exactly like our sons and daughters. They aren't. No, of course. They have their, own, their, their uh, own parents uh, and, and their own that. package. And, yeah, absolutely. And then the social growth practices will hold a summer reunion every year at our special place at Bear Lake. And we'll have a special meeting once a year with Linda just and all the daughters and daughters-in-law and me with the sons and sons-in-law, one automatic part of each reunion is to refresh and recommit to this constitution and to update it where needed. In other words, this would be a dynamic document where we're deliberate about this. We're not just letting things happen. We're designing how we'll communicate and how we'll love each other well, as an empty nest family. Because we have to adjust as our kids get older. Now we do this with our daughters and daughters-in-law every five years because they have their families and their own other family, right. and there's it gets so complicated. But do what works. Now, we don't want to run out of time, and this is an important one, the financial IRL realm. We called it the financial foundation and again, and again, you have to realize we're not saying we're perfect on these. We're just saying it did us a lot of good to think about them. So the, the principles of the financial agreement were. We are not owners, but stewards. Money is a tool, a means to ends of broadening and contributing and finding and fulfilling our forward nations. There is a financial range in which maximum freedom and happiness lies. All battles are won on reserves. So then we made these following promises. Pray for enough and to know what is enough. Practice 10 20, 70. That's 10% given to church, 20% saving, 70% to live on. And have no credit or consumer debt other than one low-limit credit credit card and a, and a house mortgage. We talked so much about that. And then we designed ways that the family could 
help those who needed help in various ways? Well, you know, our I think our kids have more than one credit card. I mean, we well, those were the early days. We were trying to set this up, but then we we created this family bank, where and we agreed before the kids were in college how this would work, that the family bank would cover room and board for undergraduate college and the entire cost of one semester abroad, but that each child, in addition to that, can borrow interest free from the family bank for undergraduate or graduate education interest-free loans. We wanted the kids to feel like the college education was theirs, that they were paying for it. They took a loan from this family bank, no interest, and an unlimited payout period. So in a way, it was like they were receiving, it was a gift, but they felt, and now some of them, many have begun to pay this back, they felt it was their education paid with their money, not our education that we were giving them. And, of course, we are very different. Our situation is very different than most other people. And our children now are not following along with that with their own children because they have different. We have a son whose daughter's going to Columbia this year, and they just said, you know, you're on your own. Figure it out. And she got scholarships, and she did what she needed to make it work. So, and then well, we won't go on to that, but it's a, it's a, probably the most detailed part of the Constitution was just exactly what they could expect financially and what they were right. on their own for. We see so many families where that's an ongoing problem because there's no set policy. And kids want something and they want help now and, and they can't get it or they, they think the parents have let them down. All this needs to be in writing, if possible, as you go into an empty nest. And then, Linda, the last one before we run out of time, the spiritual part of this agreement may be the most important, don't you think? Uh, yes, and it doesn't work the same for every family. The principles all work the same, but the outcome is not always Just the same. Just give you a flavor. We called it the spiritual omniscient partner principles, and it deals with Christ being the focus of all we do. It deals with trying to have spiritual synergy between us where we try to help each other with our testimony, with our belief structure, and we listen to each other, and we don't, we don't demand unanimity. We we want to have different opinions. We want to have different areas where we're struggling and where we're helping each other. And then we made certain promises. Uh, we'll put Christ and Heavenly Father first, and our family, Heavenly Parents first in all things, and seek their will above our own. And then there's a whole section on that. We'll which strive is to serve really individually and collectively and so on. And then and then we made some practices up that we would try to read certain things together each month. We would try to volunteer together and give service together, even though we didn't live together at the time. And we would we would pray for each other and sometimes even pray on an electronic device so we could join each other in prayer even though we didn't live in the same location. Yeah, we've done that because our kids were scattered all over the world. And it's become so much easier uh, with our church's system of uh, come follow me now to study together. So I mean, we've tried to maybe too much on this, but like I said, this was a long book. And for us, it was a real transitional book, a really powerful time in our lives when these children who had been our first priority living in our homes are now moving on. We wanted to balance giving them independence with still having interdependence with them. We wanted to still be relevant in their lives, but 
not have them feel like we were looking over their shoulder all the time. Just a lot of issues to resolve. And we know many of you listeners are going through that phase of your life right now, and we would seriously invite you, in addition to listening to this podcast, go to IrishFreeBooks.com and scroll down until you get to Empty Nest Parenting and re- just 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 scour through, just thumb through, just, just scroll through those 500 pages. Find the parts that might stimulate you to really be deliberate in how you handle this phase of your life. Well, I think the most important thing is the fact that it, you've got to have a plan. It, yeah. it, your plan is going to be maybe totally different yeah. than our plan, but you've got to have a plan, and it really is amazing the difference it makes with family meetings and family councils deciding together what to do. If you're a child, uh, an adult child, set this up with your parents. If you're an empty net parent, get together with your kids and work it out. We wish you the very best. Thanks for listening in, and we'll see you next time on Ayers on the Road. Bye-bye.